Hey everyone, and welcome to the 70th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. Today I'm talking with Connor Mortel about three articles he wrote for the Mises Institute. The first article is about the skyscraper curse and whether or not it has gone digital. The second is about why business owners can't pass on tax costs to customers. And the third is about whether student athletes should be paid for their name, image, and likeness. I'll link to all of those articles in the description of this video. Please share this podcast around if you enjoy it. And remember to subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, and YouTube. Also, remember to give this video a thumbs up if you like it. I hope you enjoy this interview, and here's Connor Mortel. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. I have Connor Mortel on the show. Um, I met him at Mises University this summer, and man, I'm so excited for Mises University this this upcoming summer. It can't come quick enough. Or, are you applying? Are you going to be there? Oh, I am applying. I'm also... I'm applying for their summer fellowship. It's mostly for PhD candidates. I'm just an MBA student, so I'm not totally holding my breath for that, but I'm at least at least taking my shot and sending out the application. But if not that, I'm absolutely applying for Mises U. I mean, that was probably the greatest event of my year, without a doubt. Yeah, I agree. And I, I met a lot of people like you, and I had Joshua on the show. I've seen a lot of you guys just producing content at Mises, at the Mises Institute or elsewhere. I figured I'd bring you on to talk about um, some of your more recent articles, but, but first do you want to just introduce yourself and kind of give like a background about your academic career maybe, and then uh, just more about your background. Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Connor Mortel. Like you said, I, uh, I went to TCU out in Fort Worth, go frogs for my undergrad uh, career. It was when I was there, it was my freshman uh, macroeconomics class. My professor was, an Austrian economist, and he assigned me Thomas Sowell's basic economics and Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. So right as I was kind of figuring out my life, both those books kind of just fell into my lap. And I found myself starting to lean into these ideas. For the rest of college, I was still kind of figuring it out, but I, I kept reading more and more. And then I think it was my senior spring, I found myself listening to uh, Dave Smith's Part of the Problem. And I heard about the Mises Institute from there. And that's when I really dove in and started reading more and more of these ideas. Unfortunately, that was also right when I had accepted a job working for the Florida House of Representatives, where I ended up working for two years. I always say that it was uh, working there kind of made the difference for me between in Rothbard's Do You Hate the State? He talks about kind of a comparison between like, okay, I think that I'm a libertarian because from a utility perspective, I think the economy would be better blah, 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 versus the person who just has that passion against the state. Whereas if they had a button, they could remove it. They'd press it so fast they got blisters. I think that was where I learned to press the button so fast I got blisters. I met a lot of fantastic people there. I, I had tons of great working relationships. In fact, I... Even uh, that, I said I'm applying for that summer research fellowship. I'm definitely asking my old boss from there for a letter of recommendation, although I haven't talked to him yet, but we're, we're still on good terms. But it just the entire experience, in hindsight, was a lot like uh, Mises' book, Bureaucracy, where people are rewarded for obedience. Uh, my office was pretty good, but you could see it happening regularly, and it just felt completely like the wrong place for me. About two years in, one day my boss sat down with me and basically said, Connor, what's wrong? You don't, you don't, you don't seem yourself. 
something's off. And I just, I said, you know what? I think I'm in the wrong place. And I, I left the state house of representatives. And since then I've been working on my MBA at FSU. It's been all online. So I, it's been a little interesting, but it's, it's been phenomenal. I've been doing that. And because it's been online, it's given me the opportunity to kind of on my own terms, be able to go to stuff like Mises U or I was able to make it out to Tom Woods event uh, for his 2000th episode. And then also to the Mises supporters summit this fall, that was absolutely phenomenal. So it's been good getting to have that time to spend more time doing Mises type stuff. And that's, that's more or less my background and how I, how I came to this point in my life. Yeah. This, this last summer I went to both Mises university and uh, revolution 21 in Florida. And then I have been to the Ron Paul, I think it was the Ron Paul symposium in 2020. And after those three events, I'm just like, I, I want to be at a place where I can go to all of these eventually. Oh, it's I've been listening to the stuff for at least two years before I really was making it out to these things. It did not occur to me the value of really being at those that anybody can pull up any of these incredible, brilliant minds and watch their lectures online. And it's super helpful. And I absolutely encourage it, but there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, the day after you hear judge Napolitano give his talk and you're ready to run through a wall and die in the town square for the man, the next morning, all of a sudden you're sitting down and having lunch with judge Napolitano. I mean, that's a whole other story than just hearing the lecture. It's, the value in these things comes from those in-between moments where you're just talking to these brilliant, brilliant people. Yeah, absolutely. And Hey man, like that, all of that's awesome. And I, I've been really happy to read your articles in the Mises Institute. Um, I actually uh, interviewed Mark Thornton a while ago and I haven't, I don't know how that interview is because I actually haven't listened to it since I first edited the interview. Um, so I have covered the skyscraper curse before on this podcast. I have interviewed someone about it, but for those who aren't going to go back and listen to that interview with him, do you want to just, um, kind of explain what that theory is? And, um, I think the, the most interesting thing is how he's not just making like a post hoc fallacy where he's saying, because interest rates are low, um, and skyscrapers like record skyscrapers are being built afterwards. There must be some connection there. He's actually like building the causal relationship and kind of like playing that out for us. Um, so do you want to give a little bit of background for that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the baseline of the skyscraper curse is in Austrian business cycle theory, which I'm sure a lot of your, your viewers are probably familiar with for the most part, but I'll, I'll build that background too. Basically, the concept is that as the government interferes with our money supply and our interest rates, it adjusts the signals that entrepreneurs are receiving and they invest in long-term projects, but especially long-term capital projects. And they tend to invest at rates different from what the natural interest rate would be. And as a result, eventually that investment consumption rate has to snap back into a more natural place. And when it does, you see these recessions we go into, but these recessions are really the healthy part of the process. They're correcting the boom that occurred unnaturally from all sorts of malinvestment. The skyscraper curse basically takes that and says, well, when you look back at all of this, one of the 
ultimate examples of a malinvestment in a massive capital intensive type investment would be a skyscraper. So Dr. Thornton would point out that as you go through time, you see these, whenever the largest skyscraper or structure of all time is built, we seem to see this recession follow almost immediately after. Most recently, one of the examples he uses is the Burj Khalifa being completed back in either 2007 or 2008. And obviously that directly correlates with the housing recession, but it's more than just this one time you can go back through and he's got example after example after example, it keeps happening. And even on some localized fronts, where like when there were various localized recessions, like in uh, England, they had a recession some years back and it was shortly after they had one of their largest structures of all time built. And obviously it's not that these skyscrapers being built are, are okay, now we're gonna have a recession. There's no real connection that it's creating them. It's just that logic of the business cycle theory being applied. The reason that we're able to achieve such groundbreakingly, record-breakingly large structures is because we're investing in these capital-intensive projects that aren't necessarily needed at that time. And they're malinvestments, just like anything else during the boom. They're just like the ultimate giant skyscraper signal showing you, oh my gosh, Think about the money we just poured into that project. How were we able to afford that? And the answer is right now, we probably shouldn't have invested in something that big. And eventually, as that consumption investment ratio snaps, we go into a recession. And typically, the skyscrapers get built and finished and are fine just because they were built at the peak of the boom. But seeing something that massive get built should send off these red flags being like, oh my gosh, why is it that we're at such a high peak in a boom that we were able to accomplish that were we really did we really have the resources that that was a good investment at the time or was it built because we're just so high into an artificial boom and then my article i wrote kind of takes a next step with that where i say obviously that connection is not going to last forever one day we're going to build the largest skyscraper of all time and the next day nothing's going to happen there's going to be no recession it's it's not a perfect correlation because eventually technology is going to get to a point where building the largest skyscraper of all time isn't necessarily a sign that we're in a boom. We just had the technology and resources to do it and we built it. But the logic behind it would still stand even when technology hits that point. And I would say, I effectively said that the next point in it, we should be looking more at digital projects in my big point was that the iPhone had come back, come out back in 2008. I literally had just been writing a paper for my MBA and I was writing about the recession in the iPhone. I thought, man, it's weird that these two were at the same time. And one thing led to another. And I was like, you know what? That's just the skyscraper curse. The iPhone's just a whole new kind of skyscraper. It's our new digital skyscraper. And then of course the recession before that was the dot-com bubble. I didn't write much about it in the article because it's a little low hanging fruit for this particular topic, but the the entire recession or or bust of that time was literally named because of its the role of internet projects getting malinvested in and then collapsing and i i basically make the point that as we look for this signal we're still at a point in life where these skyscrapers and these massive projects physically are still probably going to be signals but they'll be just as prevalent in what i was calling digital skyscrapers like the iphone these new massive projects we start seeing going forward and I, I really like how in this article you pointed out um, the 
current thing and, and the technological advancement that we might see before the next crash is meta. Um, yeah. Interestingly, I, I saw just before this an article about um, these haptic gloves that allow you to like, I think they use like air or something like that so that you can feel while you're in virtual reality. And I mean, are there any other examples that you can think of? So like you said, metaverse was the one I mentioned in the article, just because that was obviously the big news piece at the time. I remember when I was writing it at the moment, my, uh, my friend texted me something, some video of a link and it was an advertisement for personal little hovercrafts. It wasn't anything crazy. You could hover three feet off the ground and move around. But I remember texting back and I was like, dude, you will never believe this, but I'm literally writing a paper right now saying crazy tech projects are a sign of a recession as you sent me that. And I mean, obviously some of these things, like I said, sometimes we just have the technology and actually, you know what, maybe it was a good investment, but as a, as you look around at those little things or the fact that you can feel in virtual reality, you just kind of have to keep in the back of your mind. Okay. Well, is the reason we got this, that we were able, we just had the money and the resources and this really was called for and demanded at the time or right now is, are the signals at, at B for entrepreneurs just so crazy that they invested in this thing that wasn't necessarily necessary at this moment in time. And I mean, obviously I can't speak for the consumers. If I knew exactly when a bus was coming, I wouldn't be sitting in a tiny house right now. I'd probably be somewhere else. But at the end of the day, as you see those, you got to ask yourself if that's why I think, uh, I want to say it was Bob Murphy, but I, I not a hundred percent certain. I was listening to one of those podcasts where he had described a year or so ago where he said, you know, in 1900, we could have made the iPad. All the natural resources that we used existed then, but it would have cost everything we had to come together and build that. Whereas now we have the iPad and obviously I make my claim that the iPhone was in and of itself its own sign, but it was much less of a sign than it would have been if we managed to put that device together a hundred years ago. So you have to ask when you're looking at that virtual reality thing or a personal hovercraft or the metaverse, is this something our society really demanded? Is this something that was ready? Or is this something that we're really making because we're over-investing in these long-term capital projects because we've got crazy signals going on right now? Yeah. And I, th I think that some people might hear an argument like this without diving into the actual economics and say, well, what, what exactly is the problem here? Because I mean, we have, we, have the iPhone now, you know, and we continue to have these, uh, advancements within this, this, uh, tech sphere, iPhones are getting cheaper. They might say, so is it really a bad thing that, you know, we invested in this area to create something that has improved our lives? Well, and the answer to that, I, it kind of goes back to, uh, to Basiat seen and unseen. Yes, we have the iPhone. That's great. And yes, we have these new massive skyscrapers and those skyscrapers get used. But the question is, what would we have had instead? And I, I actually first heard this from uh, Dr. Engelhardt at Mises U when he gave his, his speech on it. I even had him sign his chapter of the, of the skyscraper curse, uh, even though it's uh, Dr. Thornton's book. But the answer is that these projects themselves are not a bad thing. It's like you said, you got to dive into the economics of it and look at the unseen of it all. The reason this project was able to happen was because we have no awareness of the actual natural interest rates and what's demanded. And we're investing in things we're not ready for. 
And the fact that we're investing in things we're not ready for is what creates that boom bust set pattern. So as we do this, yes, we have these new products, but eventually, like I said, that that proportion has to snap back to reality. And I don't know, assuming I'm right that the iPhone really was something built in a time that it just wasn't quite ready for, well, were we five years out? And if we had just held off and invested in a natural proportion the whole time, would we not have seen a bust? You don't, it's, it's impossible to prove these things because obviously we can't see the counterfactual play out. But anytime you have these malinvestments, you're going to create an artificial boom and it's going to feel like, okay, good, we have the iPhone. Good, we have a skyscraper. Good, the economy's great. But if it is built artificially, there is going to be a bust and that is not going to be great. And it's the, it is because of that boom that the bust comes so if we don't push beyond what we're ready for, you won't see this boom bust cycle the same way because we won't have these malinvestments because currency won't have been affected and credit rates won't have been affected. So you could say, okay, we had whatever inflation gave us the money to create any good, but it didn't, it didn't create anything new. It just affected the way we're perceiving things. And eventually that comes back to bite you. So I'm just going to try to foresee like an argument that I might hear, yeah, or I go guess a problem that someone might uh, come to is just the idea of what it means to have enough resources. Or we say that uh, this product could was at the wrong time and we're kind of like making like a somewhat of a moral statement. It almost feels like, can you, can you kind of flesh that idea out? Yeah, 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 for sure. I'm I'm definitely saying that a little, a little uh, briefly and overlooking that. Really, what it comes to is uh, is Bombavrik's pure time preference theory of interest. When I say the wrong time, I don't mean what I think is wrong. I mean that the interest rates that provided the funding for these projects was based not on the natural time preference theory of interest, where you and I are each out entering into the loan market and based on our own preference for when we want money and the preference we have for how soon we have it affecting the rates that occur, we're seeing artificial rates from the Federal Reserve misleading us. So I'm not saying that we made it the wrong time because I think it's the wrong time. I'm saying that when an entrepreneur sat down to make this project, he made it off of numbers that were more or less made up as opposed to a natural rate that would be what I'd call the right time more so it'd be everyone's natural time preference would determine how money was available rather than the federal reserve determining what money for these projects was available. Yeah, I think, cause I mean, that was, I, I, I do think that that was my first problem when I heard this theory is just like really what signals an entrepreneur gets and at what point they make decisions. I, I, I was struggling with like the nature of how entrepreneurs decide what they're going to build. And it really is whether or not they have signals through the price of money and whether or not we have saved up enough to create these long-term projects. I think that at, at first that was like very difficult for me to understand. Yeah, it definitely. So the whole theory rests on Austrian business cycle theory and you and I know that there are thousands of pages of Austrian business cycle theory. You could, you could take a long time to really familiarize yourself with everything. 
And as a result, it is kind of hard to grasp that without the business cycle theory. And obviously, we were at Mises U. I think it was the third or fourth day before we even got into it, just because you're building so many, so many factors up to it. You have to understand subjective value. You have to understand time preference. You have to understand capital theory. And all this builds in event and banking and interest and just everything until eventually it builds into Austrian business cycle theory. But that's a lot of the reason I like the skyscraper curse, because it's it's not going to perfectly help you. OK, now I know Austrian business cycle theory. But for someone who is unfamiliar with Austrian business cycle theory and Austrian economics, but is somewhat interested, I think it's an awesome starting point because when you're just some, some average person who's not super into all of this, like, like the, an average Mises U student would be, it's tough to really sit down and care about capital structure. But it's much easier for a random person to take that time, read the one book and visualize okay, well, if I were going out in my life and I built something massive I couldn't afford, later that would come back to bite me. Okay, now as I'm going throughout the world, let me look at what I see. Was this project something we really could afford or not? And in fact, I actually, while we were at Mises U, as soon as I heard Dr. Engelhardt speak, I went straight to the bookstore and bought this for my dad for that exact reason that it's it's not a super complicated it's not a 1200 page Mises act or human action or man economy and state. It's a short book. And it's a, it's an easy anecdote when you're out talking to a friend saying, well, look at it. Every time there's been a groundbreaking sky or a record breaking skyscraper built, there's been a recession. Let's talk about why that is. That's a pretty easy discussion to ease in someone who's not as deeply interested in this might be with something more complicated than that. Yeah. Is it, is it true that the, the last skyscraper, like the record-breaking skyscraper actually wasn't finished before the most recent recession? You know, offhand, I don't totally know. Okay. I do. I do recall in, uh, in Engelhardt's, uh, Engelhardt's lecture, he talked about how one of the more recent ones uh, was actually as on a localized level, not, not globally, but on a localized one, one of the record-breaking skyscrapers was in Wuhan, China, which of course is a funny anecdote that obviously there's a bunch going around regarding that. And all of our economic problems we're seeing now are in some way connected to everything going on. I mean, we're reacting to a pandemic. Now, obviously the fact that the skyscraper there is just random chance that that's where it was to signal it. But it is a great, like I said, a great little anecdote. But as far as whether or not they get finished, I mean, that really comes to the timing of when the bust happens. The planning of the skyscraper really was the malinvestment. If they happen to plan and it gets all the way through to finished, lucky for them, that's fantastic. If it doesn't and it busts earlier than then they thought, that's a lot less fantastic for them. But either way, it's going to bust. That's just more a matter of timing. Whether it's finished or not, the logic really still stands that they had this massive malinvestment that was symbolic of all the malinvestment going on in the economy. And sooner or later, it snaps. Yeah, well, I do want to move on to your um, another article that I read that I find very interesting is uh, your article about passing on tax cuts or, or taxes to the customer. Um, you often hear this argument, including in, in minimum wage arguments, where even I think libertarian minded people are going to make an argument where it's like, if, if we increase the minimum wage, the businesses will just pass on the, the, the price to the customer or something like that, or higher taxes onto the customer. Um, 
And like I said, people who are kind of have the same beliefs as us will get trapped in that same argument. So you kind of want to talk about what exactly is the problem there and why that argument is faulty. Absolutely. So what had originally inspired me to write it was actually when uh, Jen Zaki had talked about uh, one of Biden's actions leading to potentially passing on the customer to or the price to consumers. And she said, well, the American consumer won't stand for that. I said, well, you know, I, I don't think Jen Psaki and Biden have read much of their Rothbard nieces, but even if it was by accident, I think she kind of did have a point there with what she was saying. So I started writing it and it, I, I believe I quoted somewhere from man economy and state in my book, in my paper, but I know Rothbard said it a number of times. And the idea is that because we as Austrians believe value is subjective and it is imputed from the consumer to the consumer good, to the producer good, or imputed backwards, as we sometimes say, we, as a result, say that, well, the consumer determines value. When I go out into the world and I decide, okay, chicken wings have been inflated beyond anything. I can't, they're going to raise the price. Doesn't matter to me. I'm just not going to buy it. As a result, the consumer has the final say in whether or not that transaction actually happens. So when you have this tax increase, it's hard to say that they'll just pass it on to the consumer because at the end of the day, if you, the consumer can't bear that tax increase, they're just not going to buy it. And as a result, most businesses are going to be charging the max they can anyway, because if that business could have passed along another $2 onto the consumer beforehand, why did it take until this tax for them to charge it up? No business is out. I mean, obviously some businesses are very charitable and generous in their own way, but at the end of the day, business's job is to seek profit. If they could have sold that for two more dollars without adverse effects, why would they have held back on that? Now, kind of going back to what you were doing where you're foreseeing an argument against that, obviously some businesses did pass along taxes to consumers, but that's more of a result of poor forecasting before the tax, where it turns out the consumer was willing to bear an extra $2, $3 on the price, and they were just missing out on that opportunity beforehand. The increased tax didn't in any way make them more able to sell it. It just made them make an effort that they had missed out on before. And there are some caveats to this. Uh, obviously, we just spent a lot of time talking about Austrian business cycle theory and inflation and whatnot. Monetary factors do have a little difference in effect just because your purchasing power has changed. So the amount you can purchase differs a little bit. But just from a tax, it's tough to push that onto the customer because they could have said no if you raised it. There was no... There was no reason for them that the wings became worth more than the amount of dollars they were paying. Nothing changed on their end. And what makes that so bad, because I don't want to totally defend Jen Psaki and Biden saying, okay, well, why not raise all the taxes you want? Because it's just going to fall on the business. But on the flip side, again, going back to the seen, unseen, and as Per Bylan says, unrealized. What happens when you raise these taxes is not necessarily that the cost gets passed on to the consumer, but rather something that I would argue is worse, that a lot of products, you don't even see the price range simply because you stop seeing the product exist. When eventually, the price is going to reach a point on the tax rate 
where it's not profitable for the business and the subjective value for the consumer isn't worth buying it. So they just stop selling it. And that to me is a much worse outcome than the price raising because of the tax, because that all of a sudden you don't even have the option because no one's producing the good. And it's all because of some artificial tax raise. Yeah, so that's my article there. Yeah. Is, is, is the argument then that like there, there may be some outward or outside factors that actually cause uh, a business to raise their prices like inflation. It's just that the customer is the, the final decision. He makes the final decision about whether or not. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Bingo. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what taxes are charged to a business. If I don't think wings are worth more than $8, I'm not going to spend more than $8 on wings. Granted, that means right now I'm not getting any wings because you can't find them for less than that anywhere. But that's that was my subjective decision. I'm not going to go out and spend more than that. I never in my life have walked into a store and asked the consumer what or the, the producer salesperson what taxes were under. And quite frankly, to assume the cost of the wings is a reason or the bicycle or whatever it is you're buying is a reason you would pay more is really just in and of itself, kind of the labor theory of value. It's saying because it costs more, you have to pay more. But that's just not true. The value starts with starts and ends with the consumer. They decide the price they're willing to pay. And if it's more than that, then the transaction's not going to happen. If it's less than that, it is. And there, there's one more article that I actually really wanted to talk about. I forgot that you wrote this, but when, when you did, I reached out to you. Um, because we had been discussing this issue on our university, it's name, image, and likeness. Um, this is just a fascinating topic in general. And I think that it's kind of like, it, it's difficult to kind of um, sift through and figure out what the libertarian argument is, because a lot of these universities are already like, they're public institutions, they're already tied together with, you know, government money. Um, so I, I'm wondering what, what prompted you to write this article and then, um, yeah, what, what your thoughts were going into it. So I actually wrote this article largely because I mentioned I used to work for the State House of Representatives. Well, the, uh, my, my neighbor's desk up there when I was in Tallahassee was the aide who worked for the representative who passed the bill in Florida that kind of was the domino that toppled everything and turned this into it. So it was a it was a big, big topic in our little little corner of the we called it the Tower of No Power because we were way up on the 14th floor with all the other freshman representatives. That's where they uh, they hit us off up there. But it was a big topic up there just because one of our guys right there was the one doing it. And we every time an article came out, it would quote the guy we sat right next to and it kind of blew us all away. So it had always been an interesting topic. Uh, then it finally really came to light in this season. We were seeing it happen. I uh, was a little nervous writing about it because I know libertarians don't watch a lot of sports. So I didn't know how, how interested people would be on that one. But from an economics perspective, it really is interesting. I didn't really take any stance on it when I wrote the article. And in fact, I don't think that one made its way all the way through to the Mises Wire. I think they uh, relegated that one to the Power and Market blog, but I still got to be up on Mises.org. So I was excited to see it. But basically what I said was we really can't know as Austrians, we're really into the importance of prices through exchange. 
the reason we reject socialism is that it's one will acting and without those without exchange we can't figure out what the prices naturally would be and whenever you would type of well okay should athletes be paid yes they deserve it they work so hard no they already get scholarships but when it's just the ncaa acting i mean that's effectively one will acting in its own right we really don't know what college athletes are worth and i mean it's a hard word to use with human beings and especially just basically just kids performing and making the colleges unbelievable amounts of money but at the end of the day until we could see and actually have a market for that exchange for that labor we weren't able to know what that price was because again value is subjective is the college willing to pay x amount of money or as far as name image and likeness goes is Pepsi willing to pay that athlete? I pick Pepsi because, like I said, go frogs. I know one of uh, one of our players just got to deal with them. Uh, but we get to see now, okay, maybe that is worth it. All of a sudden, some of the better players, you may look at it and say, you know what? On the market, this guy is worth way more than the $250,000 scholarship we gave him. Someone else is willing to give him way more. As a result, he really does warrant the money we owe him. And some other player... It may turn out, it may say, you know what? There is no market for this player. And it'll eventually, obviously, certain players will always receive more than others just by the nature of people being different. But you will see prices emerge for student athletes in general where you get to actually answer the question once and for all, is there a market and is, is it worth the money to invest in these kids? Does it affect the university enough? And I think one of the things I did say in the article, and it's been a while since I wrote that one, so it's escaping me a little bit. But one of the things I did say in the article was that to really answer the question, we do have to open up name, image, and likeness a little bit more, not just name, image, and likeness, but paying players on the whole a little bit more, because what we're determining now is not how much the player's worth to the college, but how much the player as a student athlete at that college is worth to Pepsi or to any, any corporations trying to advertise with them. If the college itself could play the players that would allow for more, more of an actual market because they could really see what value they add to the college based on what value the college is willing to give up to get that player. Yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating argument. I've never, it's kind of hard because like, I wonder if the, the simple fact that these institutions receive like money through student loans and there's kind of like this student loan bubble that, that the entire like institution is just built off of like faulty incentives and stuff like that. So it's interesting that like opening up name, image, and likeness almost kind of creates like a private market within that. And it's like privatizing and creating prices within that. But, exactly. are they all, but would you still say that they're built on kind of faulty incentives and in that the whole institution is, is running on, it, it doesn't have an effective price system. I definitely would say that there's something to be said there. I mean, anyone who's attended college can tell you that their prices are wildly inflated right now. So those scholarships are wildly inflated. It's really hard to get an effective price system. I mean, any you look into Austria and the first nature of really looking at these things is money needs to be a unit of count. And if it's kind of a faulty unit of account, it's going to be tougher to measure. 
That being said, I still find myself in favor of stepping closer to an effective price system rather than further away. I don't know necessarily that the result will be good for college students. And I say that in the article, some, some college students will get there and find, you know what, maybe, maybe we oversold, maybe we overplayed our hand and it, it turns out on an effective price system, we actually won't be worth what we think we are and we won't be able to get this achieved. However, I think the only way to answer that question is to let them compete. I mean, it was uh, the representative I was referencing earlier was uh, Rep. Chip Lamarca and his aide, Corey, and they were phenomenal on this where they were basically saying, look, we're for, we're for capitalism. We need to have more of a market here. Let the kids, if the kids aren't worth it, let them compete. Let them try and figure that out. And whether you're for college students being played or not paid or not, I know obviously when you get into that argument, a lot of more moral questions come in and honestly just emotional questions about the sport of the college sports and the nature of them. But from a strictly economic perspective, the only way to find out if those kids are achieving that value for the university is to take a step towards a more private market and let exchange happen and see, okay, guys, here's your shot. Can you compete at a level that earns that for our university? And I think a lot of them will. I think some of them won't. But there's no way for me to answer that without seeing the exchanges happen. Yeah, what's what's fascinating about it, I think, is that it, it's just demonstrating that there are all alternative ways to fund this thing that people really enjoy. Like, like I know that they're funding the student directly, but it also just proves how much demand there is for sports and, oh, and, how, and how like even though public universities and and the student loan bubble kind of props it all up, there there are alternative ways in which this could be funded. Um, and, and it's, it's really funny because there are a lot of more academic minded people who are like, who will make an argument that, you know, sports are a waste. A lot of money goes to sports and all of this stuff, but what, what it's showing them and, and they might not like this answer is that like capitalism might be the answer then just more free markets are the answer because you, you could see, you could see a similar thing with like a public university where the public university is funded for its academics alone and sports are entirely separate. It's just, or a private university where it's funded without student loans or like a student loan bubble or something like that. It's just showing alternatives. For sure. And on top of it off what you said, you are right that a lot of academics would say that, you know, sports are a waste of time or a waste of money. But at the end of the day, value is subjective. What do you mean a waste? It, that person watching football or that person at Pepsi wanting to pay for this, for this advertisement, to them, it wasn't a waste of money. Ex post, they may look back at it and say, you know what, maybe we didn't need that. But ex ante, in the moment they were looking at it and they said, I want this and I'm willing to exchange for this. I know every Saturday of my life, I'm willing to exchange for college football. And I know that even though I'm a libertarian, I would gladly vote in Stalin if it meant TCU would get to win 12 games next season, or if it meant that Baylor would get to lose a number of games. So at the end of the day, a waste is something you can't determine without that exchange. And it is, it is impossible to understand that. And academics will want to say that it's worth less because they do other things. But at the end of the day, if the person's enjoying it, then it's not a waste. If they're willing to exchange for it, it was worth it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, like we're having that conversation here on our university right now, um, where we we've discovered that like most of the spending at the university goes towards scholarships. And meanwhile, we're like cutting departments and stuff like this. And it's pissing a lot of people off. And I think honestly, reasonably, but this is all a result of just having no effective price system. You know, there are plenty of students on campus who seem to want these departments and we have no way of knowing whether or not these would exist outside of a public institution without having private or without having a price system. And I have a feeling that they would, I have a feeling that these institutions still would exist and would take on a, uh, a form outside of a public institution. I think that there is so much demand for it, that there, there could be a liberal arts school where there are effective prices as, as well as um, sports teams where there are effective prices. And it's just, we have no way of knowing, and it's all a big jumbled mess because of this student loans bubble. I a hundred percent agree with that. I mean, even in this student loans bubble, I, uh, when I, when I quit my job with the state, I, uh, I had at the time been getting free tuition at Florida public schools and I go to FSU. So that's included there. And I was willing to, even though I wasn't in the right place in the state, I was willing to keep paying tuition, even in this over bloated market, just because I really have a desire to go get that MBA, keep learning and see what I can do. And I think a lot of colleges have gotten muddled and I don't know what they have to offer always but that's because what you said, we don't have an effective price system. They're not competing like a normal thing. And the same way that some departments are getting shut down, we'd see it the same way as student athletes, where I said some of the more talented athletes who really bring in value probably will get paid. And some may not deem on the market worth that amount of money. Departments will go the same way. And people have a, a an assumption that, okay, because you don't make any money with an English degree, you won't, it won't make it, it won't make it on the free market. I don't necessarily know that's true. At the end of the day, I think people, people will pay for what they want to learn. I mean, heck, Jeff Dice has an English degree, I think. So at the end of the day, I don't know that there's any belief that some of these degrees are worthless and some are not. In fact, uh, one of my buddies who has an English degree always says that what an English degree says isn't that you know Shakespeare. It says, look, man, I know how to read and I really know how to read. I'll sit down and read a 1200 page paper if you need me to. And that's something of value that could go on the free market easily. And there's a difference between the degree you achieve giving you value on the job market and the department itself having value. I pay for things that don't affect my life and my ability to get a job all the time just because I want to learn things. I donate to the Mises Institute regularly. I buy books all the time. Every time I buy a book, I don't think that's going to get me a better job. I don't think I'm going to sell my knowledge. I mean, I, I like to believe that one day my knowledge will be worth selling, but that's not why I'm buying the book. I'm buying the book because I want to learn. So you, your point about there being a liberal arts college, having that demand on the free market, even if its degree were completely worthless on the job market, that would, have, that would not necessarily mean that it wouldn't compete in a private market at all. Those, could, those are two totally separate debates. And both are a debate and we can't have an answer to the question until we get an effective competition and price system there. 
Yeah. What I, what I feel like I can say for certain, and maybe you'll correct me on this is that what won't happen though, if there is an effective price system is that we wouldn't have this extreme academic bubble and it would just like, like one of the colleges here in Montana, Montana state university, I'm going to cut myself off really quick because I made a false claim that I want to correct. I was beginning to make the argument that Montana State University is a perfect example of an administrative bubble. And I still think that that is the case, but I misrepresented how much money the president of the university currently makes. So I just want to correct those numbers really quick. The Missoula Current says that she is making $326,000, and this is after she received a $150,000 raise in 2019, according to the Great Falls Tribune. I'm going to replace the audio of the actual interview with this clip just so that the false numbers aren't being circulated around. But I really hope you're enjoying the interview so far. So let's get back to it with Connor. Meanwhile, departments are being cut and the administration just continues to grow on campus. And it's the same exact thing here at University of Montana. Like constantly students are out protesting because one of their their departments is going to close. But meanwhile, like the administration grows or we have some programs that maybe we don't need. We just can't we can't tell. Well, and um, at a, at the supporter summit for the Mises Institute in uh, St. Petersburg, Tom Woods gave a talk on education and he put up a, uh, a graphic where he showed that at the University of Michigan, uh, DEI administrators, Department or Diversity, Equity and Inclusion administrators, they have 82 full time administrators in that. And it's in total, they pay $10 million a year for that. Now, Tom Woods went into all sorts of other stuff about diversity, but really just that alone, it doesn't matter what the topic it was that these administrators were for. There is no department of any kind, whether it's diversity or the business school or whatever it may be, that needs 82 administrators at a university. That's just any singular topic doesn't need that. And of course, this is just when I say don't need that's I'm assuming they don't need it on a price on a sound price system and competition. And I totally agree with you that I think this administrative glut in universities and the salaries and whatnot would probably be a lot less than they are. That being said, administration is important. There probably would be some administrators that still earn their value. The university needs some sort of management and you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion could very realistically have a demand in the market and we could have administrators for that. And we probably would. The business school would have administrators running the business school, but you wouldn't have 82 people getting $10 million on a whole just for administration. I mean, that's just, that sounds like made up numbers for anything. And at the end of the day, that glut, I definitely agree with you would probably be seen going away in a free market because that just, I don't know how much value we as economists know that economics happens on the margin. I don't know how much value the 82nd administrator brings once you already have 81 administrators. Yeah. Well, I think, and then like you would probably even see instead of 82 administrators in this diversity department, you would, you would just have like maybe six and then they would all be paid more probably. Yeah, they'd be great. And you know what? They'd probably do a better job. I mean, it it goes back again to uh, Mises' book, Bureaucracy, which if any of your viewers haven't read, it's like 
maybe this big, but it is phenomenal. And one of the things he talks about is, is as you lose a sound price system, which the universities absolutely have, people get rewarded for obedience rather than for what they provide the university. Whereas if you had six administrators or maybe let maybe a little less, maybe a little more, we can't know, but a heck of a lot less than 82, you'd actually like if they were in charge of diversity or the business school or the art school or whatever it would be, you'd probably see them doing their job a lot better as six people trying to compete for adding value to the students' lives rather than 82 people just trying to coast on obedience. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that, man. And I didn't expect this conversation to be more about the the name, image, and likeness article, but I, I think that that's a very interesting topic. And um, I, thank you for coming on, man. This is this has been great. Oh, thank you for having me. It has been an absolute blast and a privilege for me. I love your show, so I love getting to be on here. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. And if there's anything you want to pitch, like your uh, social media accounts, please do, and then I'll link to them in the description. Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to uh, connormortel.com and that's got everything I've written for the Mises Institute, for antiwar.com and for the Libertarian Institute. And then on top of it, it's got all my social media links there. So that's easy. Uh, I've got an Instagram page where I post stupid libertarian memes. It's called Constitution of No Authority with underscores in between it. Then my Twitter page is underscore no authority underscore. You can follow me on any of those. Uh, I'm mostly just out spreading whatever, whatever Liberty thing I'm into at the moment. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks man. And yeah, like I said, I'll link to all of that stuff in the description. So if you want to follow him, please do. And, um, you can find them all below this video, but thanks man. And I'll, I'll talk to you later. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a fantastic time. It's the weekend and we can let go. It's the full send and it's the get go. It's the get go. Screen.